Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. From KQED. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Mina Kim. You've heard about Benjamin Franklin. He was the witty printer from Philadelphia who demonstrated the connection between lightning and electricity in the 18th century. Also a diplomat who chased skirts around Paris and served as the elder statesman among a gaggle of younger, feuding, founding fathers here in what became the United States of America. So I read in school, I'm guessing you did too, and later picked up that he was a slave owner as well. What more is there to say, you ask? Would you believe a lot? Documentary filmmaker Ken Burns has turned his camera on Benjamin Franklin for his latest series, which premieres on PBS next week. Ken Burns, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Rachel, for having me. You know, you you said recently in an interview that you didn't realize before making this series how superficial your own understanding of Franklin was. How so? I think it's actually, to be honest, true of every film I've worked on. Uh, They're never sort of me telling you what we already know. Um, The last time I checked, that's called homework, but rather a process of discovery. And so I think I probably thought it's hard to remember five years back that the lightning had to strike the kite. It doesn't. Um, And and how uh, misinformed I was about so much. But I knew that he is as responsible as anyone, if not the most responsible person for the creation of the United States. It isn't just, you know, being an editor, a superb editor of Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. It isn't just being the best diplomat in American history for securing the French support, which ultimately turned the tide in the revolution. It isn't the person who helped manage the extraordinary compromises necessary to create the constitution, many of them in retrospect, tragic, uh, uh, compromises, but n- no U.S. without that. And and he understood, too, that you could basically hand it off to the general, to Washington, for his two great gestures. Uh, he didn't know of the second gesture of, of resigning the presidency, but of giving up his uh, military power. And, you know, as, as someone says in the film, deeded his crab tree walking stick for, for Washington's, you know, entry into destiny. I think he understood that they were the two most important people to the creation of the United States, uh, but that the general and the first president would get all the credit. You know, after watching this series, I, I realized that I couldn't possibly have appreciated who Franklin was as, as a child or even a teenager. I think it takes a certain amount of life experience to grasp how complex a man Franklin was with with all kinds of objectionable hypocrisies and self self-serving habits. But but also really impressive on multiple levels. Yeah, oh, uh, super impressive. And they far outweigh the flaws, though they are significant, and we give uh, particular attention to, to many of them. I think that's a very smart observation, Rachel. It is true that it, you need a, a, a little bit of wear on your tires before you can disabuse yourself, which our media culture has not yet grown up to learn, um, that history uh, is as I.F. Stone once brilliantly said, not melodrama, 
but tragedy. Um, and that means all of human life and including right now. And what I think he meant by that is that in melodrama, all villains are perfectly villainous and all heroes are perfectly heroic. And that in tragedy, we can find in the same human being uh, warring tendencies and that it requires a passage of time, a certain maturity to not throw them out for the flaws or not overlook those flaws in the exaltation of their, their genius. And I, I think it's always been in our work for the last 40 plus years, an attempt to really be unafraid of how contradiction and complication don't interfere with storytelling unless it's a sanitized Madison Avenue view or a Soviet uh, view of history that you're, you're seeking, but in fact, make it more real, make it more understandable. And I think what Benjamin Franklin does is he offers us a portal through which we can see intimately our own founding warts and all, and that where the other founders are relatively static, the Washingtons and the Jeffersons, and even the Adamses, he's not. He's on this perpetual journey from a young kid in Boston, growing up relatively poor, but feeling, you know, with only two years of education, as the scholar H.W. Brand says in our film, he didn't know what he didn't have to know, so he decided he had to know everything. That, to me, is the key to Benjamin Franklin, and he never stops that. So when we examine pursuit of happiness, for example, what the founders meant, Jefferson, Franklin and everybody else was not the pursuit of objects in a marketplace of things, but lifelong learning in a marketplace of ideas. And there's no one who embodies that movement, that change, that exploration, that examination, that sometimes painful examination, um, any more than, than Benjamin Franklin did. As you point out, he was not bound for glory from the beginning, despite being a white boy in the 18th century, son of a candle maker, indentured to his older brother. But he became Mark Twain before Mark Twain and at a younger age. I thought we might listen to uh, actor Peter Coyote, uh, a longtime narrator for many of your documentary series. Uh, here he is sharing how the young Franklin launched his career as a columnist. On April 2nd, 1722, an essay appeared over the name of Silence Duguid, who claimed to be a widowed woman from the countryside and who had lots of homespun wisdom and sharp social critiques to share. It was an immediate hit. No one, including James Franklin, had any idea that the real author was a teenage boy, James's 16-year-old brother, Benjamin, who had secretly slipped the essay under the door. More of Silence Duguid's articles began to appear. She offered irreverent advice on funeral eulogies, advocated fiercely for women's education, and in one dispatch, poked fun at Harvard and the wealthy parents who dreamed of sending their children to the elite institution. Ken, this guy would have mastered social media today. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. You know, I got a funny inquiry uh, at the beginning of all the press we've been doing for this, Rachel. And somebody said, what would he think of social media? Wouldn't he be perturbed? And I said, he was social media. He's a printer. He's a publisher. He's a publisher of books. He's a newspaper man. And he's a postmaster. He's Apple, Google, 
Twitter and Facebook all in one person. He'd get it in two seconds. He speaks in aphorisms and tweets. I mean, you know, the, the proudest monarch on the proudest throne is still obliged to sit upon his own arse. Three people can keep a secret if two are dead. Fish and visitors stink after three days. You know, come on, he's, he's the genius of it. And that is the beginning of an American homespun bark on humor that Mark Twain will pick up in the next century, Will Rogers in the century after that. Um, it's it's uh, pretty interesting. One thing I wanna say about this boyhood and this rise to glory is that we're distracted by his financial success. Every generation, including the generation being born at the time of the creation of the United States has exalted Franklin as this example of pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, making it on your own. And that's how, I mean, he's on the $100 bill for crying out loud, right? And everybody wants more Benjamins, but that's half the picture. It's like we tore that bill in half and it doesn't work till you paste it back together again. And what that pasting does is remind you that Franklin was interested from the beginning in civic engagement, in civic improvement, in civil discourse, in compromise, in sharing of ideas. And so it isn't just get for oneself, one aspect of American freedom, what I want, but also what we need. And so all of his great inventions, he held without patent, which might shake the titans of industry and wealth to their foundation, but he shared them with everyone. So maybe the thing we know most about him is that he's on the highest denomination that is you know, generally circulated, the, the epitome of wealth and self-interest, but he always tethered that self-interest to doing good for others. And that is an incredibly important lesson that we can pull out of the complicated, at times contradictory, at times dark, but always um, inspirational life of, of Benjamin Franklin. But I, I have to say, I, I appreciated how you, you don't shy away in this, this documentary exploration of, of the ways in which Franklin was self-serving, even two-faced. He kissed the English king's ring. His son married a wealthy English woman and then became a governor in the colonies. Uh, ben Franklin was for the English before he was against them, right? Oh, uh, yeah, very, yeah. Oh, as, as most everybody was. They, you know, they were all British. We were all British subjects. He's ironically, Rachel, he's the first to imagine what it would be to be an American, not, not just a, a particular colonist in a particular a colony clinging, you know, tenuously to the uh, eastern seaboard. He's the postmaster. So he's beginning to see maybe, and he borrows, I think, ironically, from the Haudenosaunee the Iroquois Confederation's idea of solving your differences by having a super kind of contract between states as the, as the Iroquois nations and tribes did among themselves. And um, it was way too radical. He drew a picture of a, of a snake all cut up representing the states. And he said, join or die. This is 20 years before the revolution. He then spends the next 20 years trying to forge compromises between them. And he considers himself a Briton. And he thinks that somehow the great equilibrium will be an understanding by Britain of the role of America in the increase of the empire. That's what he's for and what he trained his son for. And his son becomes and remains all his life 
life, which destroys their relationship, a loyalist. But Franklin begins to see by the time he's in London, some of the corruption that's there, what, what you lose in that, the, the, the purity of his upward mobility, of the, the lack of pretensions of his group of tradesmen and journeymen who are forming this club in Philadelphia called the Junto, meaning the joining together, and how the, the masons and the carpenters and the printers are contributing and creating libraries and police forces and volunteer fire departments and the universe, what will eventually become the University of Pennsylvania and the, and the American Philosophical Society, the first learned society. They're doing all this. They're not the elite. They're just regular, middle-class, hard-working people. And he sees, in some ways, the decadence and dissipation of, of monarchy as his son is rising in the ranks of that. And so, yes, he, he will kiss the, the ring of, of, of the king and go to the King George's coronation, but sit in the balcony. The son is down on the main floor because he's upwardly rising and he's beginning to have doubts. The son goes off to the private parties. He walks home alone uh, to his Craven Street apartment. And so, you know, when he makes a political blunder and he's excoriated in England, you know, he, that excoriation, he walked into it, a Britain, and walked out of it an American. You're listening to Forum. I'm Rachel Myro in for Mina Kim. We're talking today with Ken Burns, award-winning filmmaker and historian. His latest documentary is Benjamin Franklin, which is airing April 4th and 5th on PBS. You recognize the name Ken Burns from many other films, including The Civil War and The National Parks, America's Best Idea. Real talk now, Ken. You're no doubt aware of the public conversation about the phenomenal success of your career. A lot of people love your documentaries. I count myself among them. But nearly 140 creatives penned an open letter last year calling out PBS for its over-reliance on one white male filmmaker. That's you. Do you feel the time has come to decenter yourself, so to speak, and and let someone else take up this work of chronicling American history? Well, let's just look at some facts. PBS puts out more than 200 hours of documentaries a year. Um, my output or my presence last year was in a three-part biography of Ernest Hemingway and a four-part biography of Muhammad Ali totaling 14 hours of time. Um, Henry Louis Gates, uh, just in his series, Finding Your Roots, and also many of his other independent documentaries was much more time. My funding percentage from PBS, I think the really important metric, which is, are you gobbling up other people's money, is a quarter or a fifth what most other filmmakers get. I've endeavored to go out because of the long track record and seek corporate and foundational and individual uh, support uh, to do that. Um, I'm in the business of telling American history and that has been from the very first film, hugely inclusive and telling complicated stories. And we of course, you know, have a diverse group of people that we work with. We've created a lot of institutions that have supported uh, the work of our colleagues and, and, and really applaud 
what was at the heart of that letter, which is to make the ability to tell stories open to everyone. But I'm not standing in anybody's way and we encourage everybody to tell their stories and celebrate that. But I also don't accept that only people of a particular background can tell certain stories of the, about the past. That then uh, relegates, it, it balkanizes everybody in a way uh, that we wouldn't want to have happen. So I totally agree with the idea of, of more inclusion. PBS is already doing it better than anyone else. Um, in fact, that letter could have easily been directed to a streaming service or to a premium cable, but then they would identify themselves and they wouldn't work there again. But PBS, in, in the obligation that we as the public broadcasting service and, and the larger family of public media have is to listen to those things and respond. And PBS has been magnificent in their response in the past year uh, to those uh, questions. And, and so we're just... We're, we're applauding uh, the objectives along with everyone else. I'm asking you, you know, because I'm asking myself these questions, right? I'm, I'm white in public media for 25 years now. What's my responsibility to help diversify the conversation? I guess I'm asking, how do you see yourself uh, as someone whose role now at this point in your career to lift up the next generation of storytellers. But we've been doing that, as I suggested, um, in many, many different ways. And we give out a very real uh, Ken Burns Prize through the Library of Congress and uh, Jonathan and Jeannie Levine, two extraordinary philanthropists. Uh, it amounts to $200,000, $200,000 to the winners, 50,000 to the runner up and 25 to the uh, three others involved. This is not insignificant funds. As a starting out filmmaker, I my my first film, Brooklyn Bridge, which was the first one on PBS nominated for an Academy Award, um, its total budget was um, less than two hundred thousand dollars, and I, you know, just to scrape for the last twenty five thousand was as difficult a task as I've ever had. So we've been very mindful and have been working uh, with National History Day, which is taking the kids in middle and high school and, and giving them awards for the work they do and encouraging that sort of stuff. That's obviously what you want to do and what we've always sort of done. And, and I think the way we've approached history that we've been talking about in our conversation is hugely important, that it hasn't been a top-down history we've told. It's been bottom-up and it's been warts and all, and it's been dealing as many people have complained, critics and colleagues and uh, others about race too much, you know? And uh, when Barack Obama was uh, inaugurated, many people say, well, now will you shut up? And I said, I held up the Onion magazine, which said, black man given worst job in nation. And I said, just watch what happens. And now to their credit, those people have come back and said, yes, the centrality of race is important and it can't be segregated. We have to tell it as our story. As our story. Ken Burns, award-winning filmmaker and historian, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's been my pleasure, Rachel. Thank you. His latest documentary is Benjamin Franklin, airing April 4th and 5th on PBS. You're listening to Forum. Thank you so much. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.